Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products that customers love. Today, we're talking about how established organizations can innovate, resulting in new products and ventures. Most of us have been in established organizations. We know that this can be challenging as a culture of innovation might be lacking in some way. We'll get into that a bit. Joining us is Andy Benz. He's a management advisor, award-winning author, and speaker on innovation and change. He has over 25 years experience helping companies make and execute strategic choices to support business growth. He's been at the co-face of innovation, working alongside the leaders of IBM's Emerging Business Opportunity Program, and he now leads Change Logic, a strategic advisory firm which takes a hands-on approach to enabling firms to build new businesses. He's had numerous articles that he's published in, in many different venues about his insights, and he has a recent book he co-authored called Corporate Explorer Field Book, How to Build New Ventures in Established Companies. As a reminder, we do take detailed written notes for everything that we discuss. We also create a one-page action guide to help you put into action some of the key insights from Andy. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 470. This podcast is made possible by the Rapid Product Master Experience. That's the RPM experience. This helps product VPs and their teams, everyone really involved in creating a product, to increase their performance, working in alignment to reach those North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge. It really helps everyone get on the same page and understand the seven fundamental building blocks for doing the right work for product management. What we do is we meet nine weeks. Over nine weeks, we meet 75 minutes each week virtually, and participants will learn those building blocks and also build their collaboration and trust in the process. And it's unlike other training, it is an experience together where everyone contributes. If you want to see how it works and if it could work for you, go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Chad, thank you very much for the invitation. Really delighted uh, to be here with you. We met on a uh, webinar that you were doing with uh, Tony Alwick and uh, discussing some of these topics about innovation and excited to find out more. At that that time, I didn't actually know much about your book. You, you guys weren't talking about that per se. Uh, you were talking about one of the tools in the book, Jobs to Be Done. We might get into that later. But yeah. I want to ask you first about the subtitle to the book, right? The subtitle is How to Build New Ventures in Established Companies, which kind of suggests that established companies aren't good at this. That's what came to my mind, at least when I read that. Why is this book needed? What, what's your perspective on that? So let me put this in context. So the first book uh, we did, so we, we've got a book called Corporate Explorer, how corporations beat startups at innovation. Uh, so then when we did the second book, um, the field book, I think maybe I, I decided to tone down uh, the subtitle uh, a, a little versus the first, which to many people, you know, sounds outrageous, but actually turns out to be, although a challenging thing for many corporations to do, to actually generate new revenue streams, to step out into a new area, to found a different kind of uh, company or organization, and to, to get it into market ahead of uh, a venture-backed startup. But it does happen, and it happens far more often than, than we realize. And part of the reason for that is that it's hiding in plain sight. You, you don't look at Microsoft, for instance, and say, oh, Microsoft, they've set up all of these new ventures like 365. That, that's, a, that's just a product extension for them. That's nothing new or radical. Wait a minute. 
what they did is they disrupted themselves right. by building, taking the Exchange server into the cloud and then building a whole new tool suite around it, right? Yeah, or, or I was actually off. shocked. I, I did not yeah. think they could pull that massive of a change off. Ah, yeah, it, and, and when you look inside these stories, right, what you find is that there's a corporate explorer at the center of it. In other words, somebody who has the vision, the commitment, the passion to really drive it through. In the case of 365, it was, I think, Chi Lu was at that point the head of the application systems group at, at Microsoft, and then Rajesh Jha, who had the specific responsibility for 365. And so maybe it's the pairing of those two that really made that happen. But it, that's a repeating story. So that's one part of it. So we get we published this book, but it wasn't enough for me to write that. And my, my two co-authors on that were Mike Tushman from Harvard, Charles O'Reilly from Stanford, a management consultant working with a couple of business school professors. And as an aside, it was great fun. I would deliver a chapter every week and get it graded by these two eminent <laughs> school professors. But anyway, the second book then, um, it, sa it says something quite different. It says, we don't know all the answers management consultants and academics, actually, most of the answers are in the field with the people doing this. Mm. And that they sit in lots of little micro practices and activities that together make you more able uh, to fulfill that function of being uh, a, a corporate explorer successfully. So we wanted to bring that to light. We wanted to really bring that out uh, and make some of those tools more available to people. Okay, so big takeaway. This is happening more than we might be aware of. And the 365 is a good example. I thought Microsoft would struggle with that. They're very good at the enterprise, but just yeah. the business model was a dramatic change. I thought they're not going to see their way through the revenue formula for this. They obviously pulled it out well. So organizations do have resources. But, but they're not alone. Sorry, Chad. They're not alone. Look at Best Buy, mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, right? Best Buy in retail that it has tiny margins, they're up against Amazon, somewhat fearsome competitor, right? And yet they have Best Buy Health. This is now more than half a million of revenue, sorry, half a billion of revenue, and they are closing the last mile from the hospital to the patient's home to enable people to receive care at home. This is like radical stuff, right? And, and really successfully executed. So I think there is many of these stories in all kinds of places and they just don't get enough, uh, they don't well understood enough, partly because it turns out that firms that do it sometimes can't do it again. Okay. Talk about it, it's not, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Let, let me ask my question in a different way, because it, yeah. on one hand, we might get the idea of companies are good at this, then what, why do we need a field book? But as you just said, maybe some of that, I'm thinking of some examples in my head where they got lucky in the sense that they did not have the processes or the culture established. And as you yeah. said, there was a corporate explorer who broke all the rules and basically did things in secret <laughs> to, until things were too big. So it, it seems like there is a, a need for this book to help people know how to be corporate explorers and break through some of those issues. Uh, what do you think? I, I do think so. And, and this is part of the issue. I completely understand and endorse the view that to get better corporate innovation outcomes, you need good processes, good practices, and this enabling culture. Right? Mm. And there's a book, sorry, there's a chapter in that book about how do you 
create innovation culture and actually takes Microsoft's approach slightly later than the 365 story under Satya Nadella, how he changes their culture, which I think has been broadly pretty successful. But one of the things is that when we look at venture-backed startups and entrepreneurs, we don't say, oh, that Musk guy, Bezos, what a great process they had. Boy, mm-hmm. do we need to get after their process? No, we look at them and we say they're extraordinary leaders. They're people who believe in something and they follow it with passion, right? That's what a corporate explorer does too. And so part of what's needed here is a little bit more balance in how we think about corporate innovation. Because when you look at these successful stories like Microsoft, like uh, Best Buy, but one that we tell in the in the Red Book, the Corporate Explorer book, is Christian Kurtish at Unica Insurance in Austria. Right? This is a firm founded in Vienna in around 1800 and something. Beethoven is active in Vienna at the time. And it fast forward 200 years later, and a, man- a middle manager in their Hungarian business, right? So down the Danube, pretty the, the geopolitics between Vienna and, and Budapest as such, you look down as you look down the on them as uh, down, down the Danube as the little brother. And yet he manages to build a first-of-a-kind digital-only insurance business for this hmm. company. And he does that because he is, is really three things. He's incredibly passionate about not his idea, but the problem he's solving. This is Tony stuff, right? This is job-to-be-done stuff. Yeah. But he's not, he's not just identified this, this problem. And, and the problem for him is how do urban-dwelling younger consumers engage with insurance products when the traditional agent-based model, it doesn't touch their lives, right? So how do they fulfill that need for security and so on? And he just subverts the entire insurance model, right? You know, monthly subscription, digital only, and all this kind of stuff. But he gets this through the company. Then second thing is that he he builds support around him, right? And And so this is why these corporate explorers are often insiders, who build a social network or have social capital in the organization. And they don't do it by, you know, saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, my idea's the best. They do it by saying, hey, Chad, have you noticed this problem? I've got some ideas about how we can solve it. Mm -hmm. Can I take you through them? Maybe you can support me. And they build through conversations this support for them. And the third thing they do is then they get really, and this is stuff I'm sure you've talked about on your show, they get really into this whole experimentation thing in a big way. And they teach the incumbent organization, the traditional organization, how to learn through experiments and how to move in small increments rather than what they often do, which is overinvest and overspend on innovation. And so this sort of formula of I'm going to have this customer passion for a problem and solve, I'm going to build a social network around it, and then I'm going to pursue it, not with just piling cash on it, but by by teaching people how to do small experiments. This is the sort of the corporate explorer uh, recipe uh, very often. Very good. I, I like the focus very much on the problem and the customer, right, that you conveyed there. I think one place that organizations get bogged down when they have their innovation programs and they may be diligent about dedicating a certain amount of their revenue each year or their profit each year to new work, but figuring out which projects to actually move forward with is a bit of a challenge. And I think coming back to we have an actual customer problem 
and we have a customer saying, yes, that's something that I need. And there is lots of those customers, right? That's an important starting point. And I like that and sharing the story of that and then conveying the working in small increments towards understanding how do, how do we do this. I might get back to culture in a moment, but I, I do want to get into some of the, the tools that you address in the book, right? And so there, there's several topics there. You talk about developing a practical strategy, gathering market insights, developing a jobs to be done market canvas, collecting customer research, reducing risk, more things like that. What I would really be interested in, because obviously we'll point people to the book to to dive into details, what have you seen that resonates with organizations in sense of, okay, here's something that we thought we were doing okay at, but wow, you have helped us really see a better way to do this. Of all those things, where should we start? What has really resonated well? The, The one that gets the most attention right now, Chad, is when we talk about hunting zones. And part of the challenge that large organizations get into, is this innovation thing a top-down approach or is it a bottom-up? Do we need strong direction, let's go after this, or do we need to gather ideas from the broader community and allow people to emerge with their customer problems to solve and so on? And what we found is that as my my firm has changed logic, and so we work with a lot of large corporates, and I find that they wrestle with this and and that this hunting zones notion allows them to bound, put boundaries around where they want to generate new ideas. And they can use sort of good analytical techniques to describe the areas of largest opportunity and get agreement to those and then invite the potential corporate explorers to step forward with the kinds of ideas that they that might generate value, right? But within those zones. And that this is a little bit counter some of the orthodoxy, right? If you go to uh, my colleague, Mike Tushman's colleague, his colleagues' classes at Harvard, they'll tell you about how important it is to have lots of ideas, lots and lots of ideas, and then you might find a good one. That is what leads to the problem you describe. It's really tough to actually select an idea that you know what the best one is. You'll lose far, you know, you'll lose far more good ideas than, you'll, than the chances are you'll find the best one. This bound, putting some boundaries around it helps you pre-filter because you already know what it is that is attractive, and you've closed some of this gap. So that's a, a chapter and a, and a tool that's got a, a lot of attention. Before you move on to the other one, the hunting zones, I imagine this is somehow, as we might be developing in a, those zones in an organization, connected to the current strategy of the organization, what our key objectives are. <laughs> is there an example you, that I don't know if you're able to share one if companies sure. work, work with, but... Yeah, no. So the one I share is one that's a, l- a little bit old now, but it's got such a great proof point that it's obvious. If you look at Jensen Huang at NVIDIA, you go back to 2012 and Jensen Huang leads this graphic processing unit firm that is doing marvelously in gaming, but finding that Intel is incorporating the GPU into the CPU and basically sucking value out of his entire business. He called, he called it being caught in the Intel black hole. And there are lots of different ways you could approach that. And But he takes quite a particular one. And he says, look, let's find the areas in the world where we can, where there's problems that need to be solved that nobody else is solving, and we can do it better than anybody else. And he defines, firstly, science, that there is some sort of application of computing power that can solve scientific problems that people really want to get after. 
And he also looks at automotive and that leads him down the road of autonomous vehicles and so on, but also looks at cryptocurrency where he slightly gets lucky to something you said earlier. And then and then gaming consoles where he actually fails. But the science story is really interesting because what he does is he doesn't just blunder in and say, oh, we've got a great solution for scientists. No, he says, right, now I've understood this is a key area. What areas of science are most active in where are they the biggest problems? And he really gets involved with the scientific communities because he's bounded his the, the areas he's interested in. He right. can engage in learning much more deeply. So that allows him to build the sort of software platform which helps them to write for his GPUs, and that's what drives the 6,000% <laughs> improvement in his stock price over the last 10 years because he's caught the AI you know, wave. And he didn't catch it because he was lucky. He caught it because 10 years work of really trying ready. to understand. He was, he, as, as a, I would say, as much as ChatGPT, he actually helped it happen, right? Because mm. without uh, that computing power, th- it wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be possible to proliferate it in the way that it has. That That's a great example. We have another example, and we write about this in Corporate Explorer Fieldbook, of, uh, of this insurance company in Austria. And they take this one lesson I've described already of looking at new digital insurance. And they say, let's get involved in healthcare as well. right? And they map out the sort of the customer journeys of stay healthy and get healthy in healthcare. And they say, well, okay, what are the big problems that are unsolved? There's a big problem for in in stay healthy for elderly people Mm. getting access to uh, resources to enable them to age safely at home and there's a a big problem with and here they get a little lucky as well of mental health in corporations and and they did this directly before the pandemic right so that and there's no sort of these kinds of services at that point in in this part of europe and so they they were then able to create hunting zones around different sort of problem areas. This is, I think, what Tony describes as the the, the, the job-to-be-done market map, right? How do you map out the unsolved problems uh, and know that there's a cluster of them that you can go after? Uh, so the, 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 this is the kind of approach that we're advocating. Good. Yeah, I, I think a bit about this as we're driving down the road and there's times where you really appreciate those guardrails. There's the, I think... A, this was built a long time ago, so it was like the at that time called the Million Dollar Highway. It would be much more now. Um, that has this 2,000-foot cliff down near Durango, Colorado. And um, there's no guardrail. And for innovation, we appreciate those guardrails. And I, and I think of your hunting zone as, okay, we, we know what area we're playing in. We know where we're headed. Let's look yeah. at problems in this space. So that, that, that's very helpful, and that gives direction for us as innovators. It also gives directions to executives, mm-hmm. right? Because they're able to learn and have a better ability to make judgments about how to invest. And we talk a lot often about the challenges of innovators, but I think executives face in companies face a lot of challenges with knowing how to be good sponsors, how to be good business owners of things once they're off of the origin, once they're not just incremental improvements, so there might be a little bit bigger opportunity, it's more uncertain, and that is a hard thing for them to manage. So part of this is about giving them more tools, and the hunting zones helps them do that. Okay. As we just said, hunting zones, a, a big area that organizations have resonated with, and you were about to introduce a, another one too. So let me say it this way. I truly believe that in the innovation world, we know most of the of, of the key tools around ideation, incubation of 
new ideas, new ventures. As Steve Blank has taught us about lean startup and rapid experimentation, Dio and, I don't know, Innocentive or Wazuku have taught us about open innovation and generating ideas. We've got that taped pretty much. But scaling, actually converting a proven business into something that's going to generate value over time, I think we have less tools in that domain and less understanding of how that works. So one of the chapters that gets a lot of attention then is one on scaling and ecosystems. And, and, and basically what we talk about is the need to build out a scaling path for your innovation that says, how are you going to assemble the assets, your customer assets, in other words, customer base, channels, routes to market, your capabilities, be they product capabilities, technical capabilities, and your capacity. In other words, your ability to bring those first two things to a larger audience, so manufacturing, customer service, and and so on. And when you look at the successful scale-ups in corporations like Best Buy Health, or one of the examples we use is LexisNexis uh, Risk Solutions, which is now a multi-billion dollar information platform, but grew out of its legal information service. Mm-hmm. Right? But here's, what they do is they build a certain amount of stuff. There's definitely some level of going about innovation teams doing good develop product development but they buy a good deal as well, right? They bolt together assets and then they leverage something that they've already got in the core business, right? So with LexisNexis, they have, they start with a a lot of information about individuals that they're using to help different organizations to assess risk, but it's a, a backwater of the business. And they completely upscale that by making a really large acquisition and they build out this high performance computing platform that they also they buy some key software for that as well that can make all of this useful to a much larger customer base right mm-hmm. and so over 10 years they go from nascent revenue to multi-billion dollar revenue and now larger than the unit that created it right and we've got this kind of prohibition in innovation that we're, we're or, or inorganic growth that's different to innovation nonsense right it's a matter of how you combine assets that's what gets you uh, to scale and the, 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 so that's a chapter also that i think gets a lot of attention mm-hmm. from people once they really get into that topic i like that example i used to serve as a internal technology consultant for the large law firms at lexus oh. uh, nexus yeah. And yeah. this was back when this risk management group was just a new thing yeah. right and we were starting to figure out you know where it, where it plays um yeah. But the, the key thing that you pointed out there is to scale, you have to have a distribution system. And yeah. that, that was what enabled fuel to, the, to that change. They had a mechanism for getting this product, making customers aware of the product and getting it out to them and yeah, doing that at scale. That's so. it. And the, there's always this debate with acquisitions. Oh, should we leave the acquisition alone and let it do its own thing? And what's really interesting, I talked to the people in the companies that LexisNexis acquired to build mm-hmm on their assets. And they're like, from day one, they had a plan for us. They knew exactly what they were going to do in order to create this business. And that, that, that sort of having thought through how you're going to go from where you are to where you want to be is a crucial thing. And it's, it does, and I shouldn't overstate that you can plan this out perfectly. This is still hypothesis development, and you need to make sure you've tested out what you're doing and all these kind of good things. But you still need a hypothesis. How will this scale? Right. And I think that ventures 
you need to do that pretty early on because I, I run into, we get called in a lot to companies to say, we spent all this money on innovation, it hasn't gone anywhere. And when we dig under the hood, what we find is there was never going to be the distribution channels. There was never going to be the access to routes to market or whatever it might be. It was knowable when they started, but nobody really asked the question. So right. that's part of the story. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And it brings to mind, I'm not the person wired to think about those things because I don't get excited and passionate about that. And as we're starting the innovation project, it obviously takes a team and we need to find those people that like, oh yeah, I, I love taking growing things that, that we that we know work. Let's grow that and make it better. And we need all those people involved to help us think through this. Yeah, and we've got a chapter on that as well, since you teared up. There's a chapter about strategic diversity mm. and how the team that you start with is often not the team that's needed as you scale. Yeah. And that can have personal pain to individuals. But actually, you're right, there's a difference between the explorer and the kind of stabilizer, the person who puts order and structure around the, the, the great ideas. Uh, and it's just different roles and different kinds of characteristics of individuals. And the, the really successful corporate explorers are constantly changing and adapting their teams uh, to take account of that. Excellent. One more question for you that came to mind as you were talking about innovation being top down, bottom up. What have you seen and maybe what is your advice for where innovation lives in the organization? Right. That there's different perspectives on this. I, I can share my own, which is not finely honed at this point. But what do you see that works? I've got the research answer and then the personal answer. OK, mm -hmm. so the research answer is quite clear um, that, you know, uh, um, it needs to uh, report one level above what seems reasonable, right? Because if you tuck it down into the organization too low, what will happen is that it will get squeezed out by short-term pressure. And so it's got to come up at least one, maybe two levels organizationally above what its revenue or even its expenditure seems reasonable so that it has sufficient visibility that were it to come under pressure for a budget that it, it's it, everyone's going to know what's happening. Hey, guys, we're cutting off our future. Is that really what you intend? And the reason I think that's important is that the, the manager who cuts innovation is usually making an entirely rational choice. Right? There's not bad intent here. If I was faced with that struggle, if you were faced with it, you'd probably do the same. So you've got to take it up a little bit and give it to somebody where the rational choice is, actually, I've got a big enough P&L where I can be concerned with, with being able to keep this going, even though times are, are difficult. And we, my colleagues, of Mike and Charles, are very associated with this notion of the ambidextrous organization, mm -hmm. splitting core and explore. They've been writing and researching about that for 30 years. And it's great some other people have found it uh, of late as well, that you've got to separate this out. And that's critical. Let me give you the personal answer. All of that is accurate, great research. And what I find, though, is that most of these innovation episodes start because an individual <laughs> is really committed, passionate and stubborn. LexisNexis. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you came across this guy, Jim Peck. And Jim was the manager responsible for this risk information business. He was three levels below the CEO when he starts this story. He says, hey, guys, do you know how important this is going to be? This whole big data thing. This is the 90s, right? This big data thing. We could do some impressive things. 
nobody's really listening to him and he leaves and he goes to a startup. He spends a year trying to do it there. His, oh, that turns out startup life is hard. <laughs> he comes back into the corporation and he's learned some stuff and he gets the attention. His boss has changed and this guy, Kurt Sanford, is responsibility. And, and, and he gets a bit of sponsorship and he gets attention to the idea of what they could do. Now, ultimately, his boss comes in and his boss and all the rest of it happens and the corporation commits. But that spark comes because an individual steps forward. Right. And that's the thing that uh, is easy to lose in this story. So it's very researched and it's organizational and the CEO has a separate unit and all this kind of stuff. You need that fire of an individual. And that's why sometimes when we look at innovation, corporate innovation, it doesn't seem to work is because it's done without those people. It's only done with structure. It's only done with process. It's not done with leadership or, as you mentioned before, culture. Okay, very good. I appreciate you sharing that example. It, I think there's probably lots of Jim Pecks in yeah. organizations, and frankly, yeah. they get tired. Yes. It's like you said, he left and, and actually came back and made it happen, but they get tired because they keep hitting the wall and they can't figure out how to push through it because the wall's too big, and organizations do need some mechanism for being able to listen to those ideas and, and respond in some way. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said, Chad. It's tough. And I, this is one of the reasons for the Corporate Explorer field book is because mm -hmm. I didn't want to be associated only with a book that says, oh, this is how you do it, guys. This is all the success stories, that how they do it. I also wanted to have a statement from the field that says we were actually doing it and here's how we do it and here's why it's hard as well as it's how we get through it because it's not simple and i've been a consultant running change logic for the last 17 years because i couldn't cope with being in a corporation any longer so i'm yeah i have great humility before the achievements of, the, of these people excellent and lots more details in corporate explorer field book how to build new ventures and established companies before we get into a few more details about other resources you have, listeners know that we like innovation quotes. I asked you to bring one. Tell us what that is and what it means to you. My quote is from is not from an innovator or innovation theorist or manager. It's from a mathematician, Claude Shannon. And he wrote in the 50s that information reduces uncertainty. And I think this is the sort of thing that you should have written up on front of our desks the whole time because in in essence that's the thing that a corporate explorer is bringing to their company it's not the big moonshot i don't know one of my favorite examples now is goldman sachs you know and their efforts to create uh, a consumer bank right and we're all so sad for them and we have so much sympathy for goldman sachs that it failed and lost them billions of dollars but one of the reasons is they just went after it and there's this great quote i have of david solomon saying we can do this because we're the biggest bank. We have the biggest balance sheet and the biggest clients and the biggest IT. It's no sense of the customer opportunity or right. customer. It's all about how big they are, right? And what he's doing that is he's totally disrespecting the degree of uncertainty that exists in the market and the need for information so that you can turn that risk into confidence. You never eliminate it. But you've got to see it as a learning process. And I just love that. And I always bring clients back to it. If I can have a second one, sure. it's Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro. When Figaro uh, is trying to explain his latest little sort of game with in this very funny opera, he says, I never deny anything that I don't know. And I've also used that one a little. In other words, 
saying I don't know is a really smart move for an innovator and getting people used to saying I don't know I'm not going to introduce false confidence into the system I'm actually going to be driven by data uh, I think that's a tremendously healthy practice as well that's a good one. Yeah, I, I like both. I was once an electrical engineer, and I remember Shannon's theorem. Uh, there you go. That's, that's reducing. From, yeah, it was yeah. from a great. It was from. I learned that from the CEO of Analog Devices, Vince Roche, and would always electrical yeah. engineer. And Vince would always say this to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I was not familiar with that statement. I, I very much like its connections to uh, innovation. Information yeah. reduces uncertainty. That's it. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Tell us more about the work you do and where we can find resources. And I assume Amazon's the best place for your book, but wherever you might else want to point us to. You, you can go to Amazon. You can go to uh, Porchlight Habit, we also use, and um, thecorporateexplorer.com or changelogic, one word, com is is our corporate website as well and it's a new year and it's a good opportunity if you miss christmas presents to now buy this 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 great book for people for a new year present and, and inspire your team with it excellent andy really a pleasure to talk with you i always enjoy talking with people with great experience and especially your years of experience helping the established organization actually innovate better and create new ventures and good insights in this discussion as well as in the book and we'll have those links in the show notes thank you chad appreciate the opportunity happy new year to you. thank you very much happy new year we're just getting started here in 2024 and once again listeners if you want to find the written details including those links and that one page action guide for you to immediately put into action some of the key takeaways here that andy shared simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 470 everyone keep innovating thank you for listening to product mastery now where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.